shortly I will be introducing Colonel Paul Lockhart, former astronaut as well. And uh, while my presentation today really consists basically of my favorite, uh, maybe I should say 15 favorite uh, space images, this is sort of a self-constructed uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation. Uh, Paul and I do look forward to visiting with you about other subjects after this PowerPoint is over after he makes his comments too. And I'm not going to be talking specifically right now about the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, but look forward to your comments about anything that uh, might be uh, Bill Prinzel has been um, already recognized today. I just want to say he is someone I continue uh, to admire. He is a former colleague and someone whose good judgment and counsel has benefited me over the years. And that's not to say anything about his famous doodles uh, that I still have several uh, examples of. So I'm glad to be here with Bill Prinzel. Well, all great nations <clears throat> have always looked at the horizon to expand their borders. Uh, 500 years ago, the European countries, of course, were trying to explore other continents. 200 years ago, the United States was pushing west all the way to the Pacific. But again, that was looking at the horizon. Today, we look up and see no boundaries at all. And I don't know whether space is the last frontier or not. I certainly believe it is the next frontier. And uh, the first image here to my right shows where we live roughly in the Milky Way galaxy. Not quite as clear as I would like it to be, but basically uh, we're about two-thirds of the way out on one of the spiral arms of the galaxy. And let me pause here just to mention a couple of numbers because we're going to be talking about light years. Uh, but a light year is how far light obviously will travel in one year, which is about six trillion miles. And to give you an example of a sensor that does take light time to travel distance. Uh, the sun, for example, is 93 uh, million miles away, and light from the sun takes about eight minutes to reach us here on Earth. But what this means, of course, is that when you're looking out onto the universe, looking up to the sky, because the time that light takes to reach our eyes, we're really looking back in time. So if you're looking up at the night sky, you're looking at a galaxy that is, say, a billion light years away you're actually seeing that galaxy as it existed one billion years ago. And that means lots of times the objects that you actually see in the night sky no longer exist. Uh, they winked out many, many years ago, but you're simply seeing the light that came from them that traveled from them years ago. Let's go to the second one here. Uh, now, this is a fun shot. Uh, think of yourself sitting in an easy chair. In fact, just thinking of yourself sitting where you are right now. You feel pretty stationary, you feel pretty still, you're motionless, you're kind of not doing much here. Hope you're paying attention to me, but otherwise you're really not doing too much. But uh, if you hold on to your armrest, you'll get a sense here of just how fast you are moving through space. And you might even be ticketed for cosmic speeding when I explain how you, you add up all the ways you're moving through space how fast that's going to be. But if you add up how far, how fast, for example, the Earth is rotating on its axis, how fast the Earth is traveling around the sun, how fast the Earth is, uh, how fast our solar system is moving within the Milky Way galaxy, how fast the, the galaxy itself is spiraling, turning in space, how fast the galaxy is hurtling through space, the space expands. It's obviously kind of a corkscrew motion. But if you add up all those various speeds that we ourselves are traveling as we're sitting right here, it totals 1.2 million miles an hour. So if anyone, yeah, don't get ahead of but if anyone <laughs> ever accuses you of not doing anything, even if you're sitting there, you would say, I'm doing a lot. In fact, I'm moving faster than a rocket to 1.2 million miles an hour. <laughs> when we, let's go to the third slide. When we talk about space, uh, most people think of rockets and astronauts and NASA, the National uh, Aeronautical and Space Administration. Uh, NASA came into existence in 1958, one year after the Russians launched a satellite called Sputnik to sort of begin the space race. Uh, in response to the Sputnik, uh, not only did NASA come into existence, but the committee that would later become the Science, Space, and Technology Committee also came into existence in 1958 as well. Uh, NASA's greatest achievement may well have been the Apollo program, which uh, sent astronauts to land on the moon 240,000 miles away. The Apollo program lasted from 63 to 72. 
Uh, we had six uh, missions going to the moon. We had 12 people actually walk on the moon during that period of time. Uh, one was a constituent of mine by the name of Charlie Duke, who still lives in my district, and he sits atop the lunar module on the top of the rocket as it, launch, as it launches on the left. And then to the right is Charlie Duke actually walking on the moon a few days later. Uh, besides space exploration, NASA engages in basic research, launches communication satellites, and monitors climate and weather change as well. Spinoffs include, and I could go, there are dozens and dozens of spinoffs, so we don't justify the space program because of its spinoffs, but it's a nice, shall we say, side effect as well. Spinoffs include GPS, high definition TV, laser surgery, Doppler weather radar, and a lot of other discoveries as well. All of these benefit the economy and benefit uh, our society as well. Okay, let's go to the next image. <coughs> Here you have the Earth in the distance, uh, the pale blue dot sometimes called, and you actually see the surface of the moon uh, in, the, in the lower left. And this is one of, there's a number of famous photos about the pale blue dot or the, or the blue marble. This is one of the earlier ones. This was uh, taken in 1968 by the crew of Apollo 8, and it's called Earthrise uh, because you have Earth coming up over the surface of the moon. Uh, but uh, when this was first taken, uh, it really riveted our attention. It was sort of the first time we had seen the Earth from a different perspective than we normally see it. And of course, it caused us to wonder about our place in the cosmos and made us want to explore uh, space even more. All right, the next image. Uh, okay, this is the uh, uh, kind of a sad uh, photo on the top left. This is the last flight of the, of the shuttle. The uh, shuttle program was discontinued in 2012. Uh, this is a shuttle being uh, carried. Uh, this is actually going over the Washington Monument. It's being uh, carried down to Dulles, where it is uh, uh, carted off to the air stations at Matt at the Dulles Airport. And uh, it's sad because we, of course, wish the shuttle program I do was still in operation. Uh, when it <coughs> forced us to do something that none of us, I think, uh, are particularly proud of, and that is that we are having to pay Russia about $73 million to teach to take each of our American astronauts to the International Space Station and back. Uh, you've seen that come up in the media in the last few days for other reasons, but let's uh, hope that that international cooperation continues for a while longer. Uh, in regard to the right here is sort of an interior photo of the Air and Space Museum. Uh, the Air and Space Museum is the most popular museum in America. Uh, more visitors than any other museum. In fact, last year, 8 million people walked into that air and space museum and it still inspires people across the country and across the world as well. Okay, next image. Uh, this is the International Space Station, uh, which is orbiting 230 miles above us. Uh, many people rightfully think this is the greatest engineering feat in American history. And it's put together by a lot of uh, shuttle missions and uh, it's been occupied since 2000. It's kind of hard to get a sense of the dimensions of it, but it's the length of a football field, and if you add up all the square feet inside, it equals uh, a five-bedroom house. And uh, typically, three to six astronauts are living aboard the International Space Station, uh, typically from at least two and sometimes three different countries. Uh, the astronauts live on the space station uh, for six months. And uh, one thing that I've done, in fact, I've done it three times now back home in Texas, is to arrange with the great help of NASA a direct uh, downlink from the International Space Station to a high school in my district. And I have three high schools uh, who teach um, math and physics and science by constructing rockets. Uh, and these rockets are no small backyard items. They're 10 and 12 feet long. Uh, they go to uh, White Sands, New Mexico to launch these rockets. Sometimes they go up. Sometimes, one did last year, they went up for 5,000 feet and went horizontal into a mountain. Uh, so some, some don't get off the launch pad but, because they're shooting for the first time. But, and uh, they're still trying. Their goal, of course, is 50,000 uh, feet up. And no one's achieved that yet, but they may get there this year. But the, the point is that when we had this um, uh, downwind from the space station to these various high schools, uh, it just is amazing. I'm, uh, there's a one high school, and here we are in an auditorium with you know, 800 kids. And, uh, and the principal says to me, I have never heard 800 kids so quiet in my life. <laughs> uh, and uh, what I do is I make some comments, and then at the magic moment, you know, I say, this is Congressman Lamar Smith at, you know, either Alma Heights High School or Federalburg High School, wherever it might be. Uh, um, how do you read me? At that point, I hear from Houston Control, we read you great, and then they lead you up to 
space station. At that point, typically a flat screen um, comes alive, and there we are talking to two American astronauts who are showing off because they're weightless, and so they can sort of pass this mic back and forth by floating it through space, and every now and then one of them will do a somersault upon request and things like that. So they're having a good time, but what happens is that uh, these kids from the high school will line up, and over the course of 20 minutes, the astronauts will uh, alternate answering questions uh, from these high school students who have been primed and prepped and uh, have, uh, have had all their questions, I'm sure, screened. But we have a great time. Uh, the students love it. Uh, the schools love it, and I love it. So it's a fun thing to do, and again, we couldn't do it without NASA's help. Uh, as soon as I finish one, I put in a request for another, and I would happy to keep this confidential, because if other members start doing it, I won't be able to do it again. So you want to keep this to yourselves as far as um, All right, let's go to the um, next uh, slide here, the next PowerPoint. Um, Okay, this is okay. This is great. This is a photo of inside the uh, inside the station. Uh, there are two crews represented here: one from the United States and one from Russia. And uh, Paul, who is with us today, is in the back, uh, back right, oh. and uh, he'll be talking to you guys in a minute as well. And I'm going to introduce him a little bit more in a, in a minute as well too. Uh, but uh, the International Space Station, which you see here, is in the two crews. Uh, this is just. Um, you just have to appreciate this is unprecedented. That uh, here they are living 230 miles up. Uh, the point of the space station is to learn how living in space affects the human body. Because we have to learn that if we're going to keep going farther out, if we're going to explore further, if we're going to go to Mars or anything else. So a lot is being learned. Uh, these astronauts, who are my heroes, are subjecting themselves to a lot of uh, physical and mental stress so that uh, future generations of astronauts can keep going even farther. Okay, let's go to the next image. <clears throat> a new development in space is the role of commercial entities in providing services to NASA. On the left here, uh, you have a SpaceX rocket. Uh, SpaceX is sort of at the front of the commercial path right now. They've already taken cargo to the International Space Station three times. Uh, by the way, the, um, uh, the cargo is in a, uh, what do you call it, a, a module that has for lack of another word, portholes, so you know what's coming up. It's not just cargo they want to be taking in. In fact, uh, by 2017, we hope SpaceX will be taking the astronauts uh, to the station itself, and they can do so at about a third of the cost of what we're paying Russia today. But the sooner, the better, as far as I think almost all of us are uh, concerned. Uh, on the uh, right is a Antares rocket uh, that is being constructed by Orbital, Orbital Science. Uh, they're probably second to SpaceX. They're giving SpaceX some competition. All right, let's go to the next slide. Okay, getting uh, uh, going beyond just cargo to the space station, commercial companies also hope to enter a field uh, that was previously the exclusive sort of domain of the government, and that's called low Earth orbit. Uh, low Earth orbit starts at about 62 miles up, and uh, when uh, we get to the point where these commercial entities are taking everyday people, maybe somebody in this room, up to low Earth orbit, uh, that's basically going to be the start of what we call space tourism. And it will be coming to us within the next year. Uh, individual, individuals, not astronauts, but individual cars, of course they'll have to go through some, uh, some type of screening. Uh, but individuals will literally be able to pay their way up into low Earth orbit. Uh, the typical uh, cost, by the way, if you want to get out your checkbooks right now, is $250,000, and uh, you'll be able to get up in the low Earth orbit. Uh, by the way, on the low Earth orbit, I, let me stop there. On the left here is the Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser. This is a vertical takeoff horizontal landing uh, uh, space uh, vehicle. Uh, it holds seven uh, crew and passengers, exactly two crew and five passengers on the left there. On the right, Virgin Galactic. Uh, here is, is a space vehicle in the middle that's taking aloft by the airplane and then, the, and then the vehicle in the middle is dropped and then shoots up to the 62 miles, 68 miles uh, up in the, uh, up in the uh, sky. And when you get up uh, to low Earth orbit, it's not as high as you might think. If the Earth were represented by a globe eight feet in diameter, 62 miles up, low Earth orbit, okay, here's the Earth up to the ceiling in diameter, low Earth orbit is one inch above that eight-foot diameter globe. So not as high as you might think. Uh, commercial uh, aircraft, I was on one yesterday, 
typically five one-tenth of an inch above that eight-foot diameter globe. Uh, so it's not uh, not that high. If you go up to lower Earth orbit, you will see the curvature of the Earth. You will be able to go be weightless for two or three minutes. So you'll experience things that other people haven't experienced. Uh, you're only going to be up, you know, up and up and back is a few hours. Don't ask what that costs out to be uh, $250,000 per minute, but anyway, it's not cheap. <laughs> you'll still get some great experiences. Um, I'm trying to justify, Jennifer is helping me justify uh, to the Ethics Committee how I can be the recipient of a free flight to the <laughs> <laughs> not have it uh, count as a uh, prohibited gift. So, um, all right, the next, uh, next image uh, on this. Uh, robotic mushrooms, of course, are yielding a tremendous amount of information. On the lower right here, you have the Mars Curiosity rover. Uh, which launched in 2010, took nine months to get there, and then in 2011 uh, descended to the uh, uh, to the surface of Mars. Incredible achievement from, from any perspective. Uh, this Mars Curiosity mission uh, rover here is the size of a small SUV, weighs 2,000 pounds, and uh, moves along at the great speed of one tenth of a mile per hour. So it is slow, but sure, it's not going to run off the road anytime soon. Uh, we also have um, uh, robotic missions uh, that are ongoing right now on Saturn and on uh, Jupiter as well. Uh, let's see, and then on the top left here, uh, NASA deserves credit for launching the farthest object in space. This is called Voyager 1, top left. It is now 11 billion miles away from Earth. 126 times the length in space between the sun and the earth. So Voyager 1, 11 billion miles away. Uh, to give you a sense of the distance just within our own solar system though, Voyager 1 at the rate it's going, the speed it's going, will have to travel another 28,000 years just to get out of our solar system. So that gives you a sense of the distances. And we're just not talking about getting to other stars. We're talking about just getting out of our solar system as well. All right, next slide. Uh, sometimes, uh, instead of going to other planetary objects, they come to us. And a year ago, February, on the same day, we had this meteor explode over Russia. This was a meteor on the left, 60 feet in diameter. And this is an actual photo. I don't know how somebody got it, but a lot of people were taking photographs at the time. So here's a meteor exploding over, over Russia uh, two Februarys ago. It knocked out the uh, windows in hundreds and hundreds of buildings. No one was killed. A lot of people were injured by flying glass, but that was about it. Uh, no one saw it coming. Isn't that interesting? No military radar, at least as it has been admitted, saw it coming. It makes you wonder about what if it was an incoming missile and not an incoming uh, meteor. Uh, on the same day, an asteroid uh, passed Earth at 17,000 miles away. That may sound like, again, a long distance to you, but 17,000 miles is less than the circumference of the Earth. And that 150-foot diameter uh, asteroid uh, uh, was never expected to hit Earth, but it just goes to show you we need to look out because there are a lot of what are called near-Earth objects uh, coming our way. We just want to make sure that none hit the Earth as they've been hitting the Earth about every 500 years. <coughs> just a quick... Um, uh, quick definitions here. Asteroids are rocky objects that are in orbit in, around the sun. Uh, meteors are made up primarily of um, ice and some rock and uh, are not quite the same as an asteroid, which is far more rocky. On the bottom right here, you have an uh, artist's depiction. And this is just to show you a comparison of the size of the two objects that I just mentioned. The asteroid that is the Earth is a larger object. You can see it compared to a football field. Uh, the smaller object here is the meteor uh, that would have exploded over Russia. And uh, a direct hit by an asteroid the size of this or slightly larger would be enough to destroy a city. Uh, you have an asteroid that's a mile in diameter, and all of a sudden you're talking about wiping out countries and perhaps life on Earth as we know it. Uh, as, we, as you all know, that's occurred several times before when the dinosaurs were wiped out and so on. But uh, we're a little bit more sophisticated today, and NASA is building telescopes to help us detect these kinds of objects. Uh, there are thousands and thousands out there that uh, would be able to destroy cities or larger areas uh, on Earth. And uh, NASA's goal is to be able to detect 90% of those, basically those with diameters of 450 uh, feet or greater. And we hope to be able to do that in the next few years. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, 
uh, the shooting stars that you see at night, uh, every now and then, that little quick, quick, quick uh, faint streak <coughs> of light, are very small uh, meteors uh, that burn up when they hit our atmosphere. Uh, but it's going to surprise you that the size of those shooting stars when they hit uh, the atmosphere and burn up are about the size, you ready for this, of an apple seed. Maybe a large one might be a pea. Now that small, but uh, they hit the atmosphere, the, the heat is intense, the light is intense for, for a nanosecond, uh, but that's how small they are when they hit our atmosphere, very, very tiny. Okay, next image. Uh, this is a depiction of a great um, space venture. This is the James Webb Telescope going up, being launched in 2018. It will allow us to see the absolute earliest galaxies, and it will also, and I'll get into this in just a minute, uh, be able to help us uh, detect what we call biosignatures uh, of other planets uh, in the universe as well. Uh, this is a, just a model, it happens to be a model uh, that was displayed on the University of Texas campus. I wish I could say I was in the foreground of this photo, but I was not, although I did see it a little bit later after this photo was taken. Next image. Uh, this goes to the Kepler telescope. The Kepler telescope was launched in 2009. It's already uh, found 1,700 planets. This is just the beginning of what you know, we're going to get out of Kepler, although right now it's not functioning, but before it uh, failed, uh, we still have a lot of data that we're, that we're working through. Uh, the goal here is to find Earth-like planets that have in the habitable zone of the sun uh, that they orbit around. The habitable uh, zone is defined as a zone where liquid water could exist. In other words, neither too hot or too cold, but obviously if you have liquid water, you have the possibility of some form of life, whether it be uh, microscopic or whether it be sentient, and that's the ultimate goal. Uh, just a week or two ago, uh, because of Kepler, it was announced that we had discovered what was identified as Kepler 186F. Uh, this is the planet that is nearest uh, in size to Earth. It's only 10% larger. It's about 450 light years away, so on the cosmic scale, pretty close. And we're greatly intrigued uh, by this particular planet. It's going to be some years before we know whether uh, it's... Um, atmosphere it has indications of some form of life or not, but obviously that's going to be the next step, next big uh, effort uh, to try to determine that. Um, the a different kind of, uh, we have lots of efforts going on to try to determine if there's any form of life out in the universe and answer the question that everybody can think about for as long as humans have existed, and that is, are we alone or not? We don't know the answer to that, but we'll never know the answer if we don't keep trying. Uh, the uh, SETI Institute extraterrestrial intelligence in Mount Moon, uh, California, has directed radio telescopes to scan the sky and listen in for any form of uh, any form of message we might get from sentient beings living elsewhere. And there's lots of philosophical questions about this, and I'll just throw one out there. If we ever got any kind of a signal from another civilization, it's likely that that civilization would be a couple of billion years older than we are. We're relatively late to the landscape. And if you are talking about individual insentient beings who have been around two billion years longer than we have, it is almost un almost impossible to conceive of what form they might be taking today. Uh, are we talking to machines? Are we talking to other, other kinds of sentient uh, beings? Will we even recognize them? We don't know any of those questions, but that's what's, uh, those are some of the intriguing questions that have to be asked in any case. Uh, if we ever do hear from another advanced civilization, of course, it would be the greatest news story in the history of human time. Okay, next to last image. Next, next. Um, this is a little bit of a projection into the future, what we might see in the next 10 to 30 years. Uh, I've already talked about, uh, hopefully in the next 10 to 30 years, we'll discover some form of life, it may be vegetative life on another planet. Uh, we're going to be taking uh, great leaps into space tourism. Uh, and then also in the next 10 to 30 years, we might be looking at a lunar colony, which is on the top left, or we might actually be landing an astronaut on the moon, which is depicted on the bottom right here. Uh, this last image we're going to uh, leave blank for a minute because I want to tell you what it is before we show it to you. Uh, this is uh, called uh, the Deep Field uh, View, and it was a uh, it was taken by the scientists who. Uh, run, the, uh, run the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble is up 250, year, 250 miles up. It's still in orbit around the Earth. And if you uh, go to the right app, you can go outside and take a look up, and there you'll see this light going overhead. It'll look like a plane, but it'll really be the, uh, the space station. But the scientists that control the space station several years ago 
I mean, the scientists controlled the Hubble several years ago and deci decided to point the telescope at a dark speck of sky where nothing was thought to exist. Uh, this is a speck of sky which is totally void, totally dark, totally black, nothing, no indication anything was there. The speck of sky was so small, and I keep forgetting my prompt here. Uh, I should bring a penny. Uh, the speck of sky was so small that if you held a penny up at arm's length, Abraham Lincoln's eye, which you can hardly see on the penny, would cover that speck of sky. So a pinprick of a speck of sky, but nothing was thought to exist. Over 10 days period of time, they exposed the film. Uh, every time the Hubble came around, they exposed it for another 15 minutes. And finally, over the two weeks, 10 days period of time, they exposed the film for something like 15 hours. And they developed the film, hoping there might be something in that tiny speck of sky, where nothing was thought to exist. Here is what they found in that dark speck of sky. It's almost breathtaking when you think that. Okay, in that dark speck of sky were 3,000 points of light. Each point of light was not a star. Each point of light was a galaxy, which consists of an average of 200 billion stars. So think of that. The dark speck of sky, nothing was thought to exist, 3,000 times 200 billion. That's how many stars were in that speck of sky. So that, you know, at the very minimum, that gives you a sense of why we explore, what's out there, a sense of the infinitude. And um, our country has compiled a lot of achievements in space, but this gives you, this sort of whets your appetite for what we might do in the future as well. And by the way, in the regard to this um, Hubble Space Telescope uh, photo, I think there's a metaphysical lesson there as well, which is to say when things seem dark and discouraging, when things appear to be dark all around you, if you keep looking long enough, you're always going to find light, right? So that's part of it. Um, at the least, space amazes us and pricks our curiosity about what's out there at its best. Space inspires us and makes us want to push our mental and physical boundaries. And of course, it encourages us to seek answers to the questions about life, our existence, and the meaning of it all. So that concludes my PowerPoint presentation. I hope it's inspired you a little bit. Paul Lockhart right now. It's nice to always introduce another Texan. I've already told Paul astronauts are my heroes. By the way, I count how many I have in my district. I have five astronauts in my district. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I wish Paul would move into the district too. Uh, Paul has an undergraduate degree from Texas Tech, grew up in the Texas Panhandle, a master's from the University of Texas as well. He is a veteran of two space flights uh, to the station, space station, both in 2002, I believe. Uh, Paul, this is impressive as everything and anything else, knows how to fly 30 different aircraft, 30 different aircraft. Uh, he also um, has a degree in international conflict resolution. I think we should send him to negotiate the Russians. Cover all So uh, Paul's going to make some comments, and then we're going to move over and sit in those chairs and answer your questions. So Paul, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for being a great astronaut. And we welcome your comments, too. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for those kind comments. and for the opportunity to come here. It's good to see a couple of faces that are friends of mine. So Pam and Scott, thanks for coming out this morning. So I expect everybody is really interested in asking some questions. So I'm going to really condense my, my talk so that we can go over and kind of get to the audience. So my little speech basically is about a topic called It's Just Physics. I gave a talk last week at a private school, small school in Las Vegas, Nevada, and as always, I have the young kids there, and I'm explaining how hard it is to get into space and the speed you have to do, and, and then this young boy who's 12 stood up, and he goes, I know, I know, I know, it's just physics. <laughs> and right there, he summed up exactly why the space program is exciting, but why it's difficult, and why it's expensive, and that's because the physics involved is immense. So with that, just four short topics, and then we can perhaps just go to the questions, if that makes sense. So the first of this is human spaceflight. I think it's essential to what we do for our nation's space program. Robotic, none of the programs are also very important, but human spaceflight is complementary. And the reason why is we bring one thing when we bring a human into space, and that is judgment. And I saw that on orbit. When I could sit on orbit from that perspective, look down on the Earth, and I could sit there and use a little bit of my meteorology, my little bit of geology, my little bit of history, 
and other sciences and look down and say, I'm looking at something that I did not expect to see. That's important. Let me take that picture. Or I hear something on the space station and my experience says, that shouldn't be there. So that's why I think that's important. The, the next aspect is long-term objectives and goals and a roadmap to get there. Something as big and expansive as our nation's space program has to have big and expansive goals and a roadmap to get there. Otherwise, you don't have that perseverance to do it. And I saw it in the space station program that we had ourselves. When I got there in 96, it was clear what our goal was, to build the premier orbiting platform called the International Space Station. So I knew what my goal was, and we also had a roadmap. I knew where I was fitting into that whole tailored uh, construct of how NASA was going to build with our international partners the International Space Program. So, big programs that are dangerous and, and that are breathtaking in scope have to have clearly defined goals and a roadmap to get there. The third aspect I'd like to say is the collaborative aspect of it. The big goals that we're going to do in space in the future, the very large ones, to Mars and so forth, are going to have to be done international in collaboration with our partners. And I saw that space can be a bridge. For example, on my flight, if we were to bring that crew picture up there, on that flight was Valery Korsun uh, from Russia. And we learned during our training that in the 1980s, while I flew as an American Air Force fighter pilot in Western Germany, he was flying as a Russian fighter pilot in Eastern Germany up and down the inter-German border. And yet here we were about 13 years later as his crewmates. So there is that aspect of the collaborative part of space flight, the bridge building that it can be. And then the last point before I think we go sit down is, you know, to what end space flight? Why do we have to have a space program? Well, as somebody who was in our armed forces, uh, I think the number one reason why we have to have a robust and strong space program is to maintain America's preeminence in space. And the reason why I say that is because Space is really not a place. I mean, when you sit and think about it, it's not an end state, it's not a position, but it's a capability that has to be brought together, grown, developed, and those capabilities are what afford a people, a nation, the ability to, to be robust in other disciplines. And so that's why I would say the number one goal of our space program is to maintain our nation's preeminence in space. But in the end, spaceflight is not a zero-sum game. In other words, to do spaceflight doesn't have to come at the expense of our social programs. The two can be done together because they're intertwined because spaceflight, as we've seen, I think, benefits our nation as a whole. So with that, I think we ought to stop, go answer some questions, go from there. And remember, what's the key word? It's yeah. just physics. <laughs> I know you have a question for these guys because you love the space program more than life itself. <laughs> um, sure. Um, as a kid growing up, of course, space was just so exciting. Everything about it was exciting. It was really something that brought the country together, a lot of pride. And um, it's, what, What's it going to take for us to get a program back again that kind of, can kind of bring in some of that pride? And um, you know, unite us again, uh, the way that the station did at that, I mean, the program did at that time. So, uh, Pam, you're looking at me, so I think you're asking from uh, somebody well, in their you. perspective. Okay, great. So the question is, what, what is it going to take to re-energize our nation's space program? Well, a lot would say that it is energized and that we're on a path, and I can't argue against that. We are, we are laying the plans and the groundwork for our next uh, flight vehicles, the space launch system that are going to take us into deep space and so forth. But what I think is missing is, as I said in my second point, what is that defined goal? What is it? Is it going back to the moon? Is it going back to the Mars? Is it going to an asteroid and bringing it back and studying it? What is the actual defined goal? And I think that that has, <clears throat> that has to be uh, both the leadership and a nation um, 
involved kind of decision. In other words, it can't be one person touting. It's got to be the nation coming together under a, uh, a strong leadership that says, this is our defined goal and this is the roadmap. And once you do that, just like with anything that's institutionalized, like a sports program, like an Olympic program, you finally get everybody working together for that one goal, and that's what it takes. Um, I'll just add real quickly, obviously I agree. Uh, we sort of took uh, the initial and mandatory step of passing the asset reauthorization bill. It's just for one year, we hope to turn that into a two-year bill. Uh, but the good news there is that we, NASA is not being particularly cut in this era of budget constraints. So at least we're laying the foundation uh, for future space exploration, which includes both human and robotic. Uh, but as Paul just said, we really don't have a plan, we don't have a goal, we don't have anything right now that has seized the public's imagination as Apollo did, as the space station did, and what's next right now. And I have to say, I'm, um, I wish the administration would help out in that regard, but they proposed the uh, asteroid return mission called ARM. Uh, they are neither funding it, nor do we have a specific asteroid mine, nor do we have a launch date, nor do we even have a budget. That's not exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I proposed a Mars flyby uh, to take place in 2021. I do think Mars is the obvious next step. We've been to the moon. It's not to say we should go back to the moon, but we ought to think beyond the moon, too. And that can use some of the equipment that is being constructed right now, the SLS and the Orion capsule, crew capsule. Uh, but uh, there is no, uh, as far as that arm goes, it is not supported by the scientific community by, uh, on the whole. And so let's get behind something that the experts think will be worth doing that will challenge us and that will set goals that will uh, rivet the uh, attention of the American people. And uh, we're not there yet. It's not to say we won't get there, uh, but uh, we, need, um, uh, we need the cooperation of all involved, Congress, the administration, and the scientists behind the ideas. Yes, Don? If the Russians follow through on their threat to no longer take U.S. Uh, astronauts to the space station. What's the future of the space station? Does, do the Russians assume control of its operation, or do we still have a role? I want Paul to address this question as well, Don, but my understanding is the Russians need us just as much as we need them. Uh, in three years, as I say, we'll have SpaceX taking African-American astronauts to the space station. We're not going to necessarily need their, their rockets or rocket engines. But you notice that that Russian threat was starting in 2020. Uh, anything can happen in the next six years. And so the fact that they're threatening to do something six years from now, it's hard to take maybe as seriously as, as, as they intended for us to take. It was uh, clearly a threat, uh, but we have time to work out our differences. And six years from now, will be, I think the uh, landscape will be very different from what it is today. But Paul will be able to answer about uh, our reliance on the Russians and their reliance on us. It's very much, I think, a mutually cooperative kind of arrangement. I concur. So um, in the current political status that we have right now, it is not to their advantage to basically continue to use the space station as a bargaining chip, which is what they're trying to do. Um, there is a Russian side of the space station. There is an American side of the space station. And we can operate the space station um, just as fine from the US side. And so uh, as the chairman spoke, we have six years to work out this situation. So I see a path forward from this, and I don't see any situation where soon our astronauts are going to be standing uh, on orbit or unable to get up to the space station. That being said, the sooner we develop a secondary capability to get our astronauts up to space, the better off we are. There's literally a Russian side to the space station and an American side to the space station? There is. There's an open pathway between the two. Uh, but you can go down the long longitudinal axis of the space station and you start out on the docking port where the shuttle used to go. You go into the laboratory that the U.S. built, then you go through some nodes, then you go through a long corridor part, and as you do so, you move from the American side into the Russian side. And they operate different, different power systems, different ways of storage and so forth. So it is, it is totally different. So I, I recently read this delightful book by an uh, author by the name of uh, Mary Roach called Packing for Mars. If you haven't read it, I, I recommend it. Uh, but one of the things that she talked about in the book, which is about the, kind of a, the challenges of, of space travel and very kind of uh, uh, some of the more pedestrian challenges, 
is how the astronauts are changing. So you were a fighter pilot, and the early astronauts increasingly had that kind of background. But as, as she explained it, astronauts these days aren't necessarily pilots. There are a lot of different types of maybe maybe put it they're not as macho. How have our astronauts uh, been changing since you that? I think that's directed to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you get my feathers up there. You know, you know. So, uh, so that is correct, and the reason why is autonomy or autonomous vehicles. So the more you can make a vehicle autonomous in the docking, in the landing, and in the rendezvous and so forth, the less you need the hands-on, the stick, and the controls and so forth in order to fly the vehicle. All that's fine from this pilot's perspective. As long as all of that equipment works, as long as everything's fine, but as soon as you have that software glitch and you have to revert down to the manual mode, you better have somebody there that can fly the thing. That's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me add another uh, aspect of that. You mentioned the book was called Passion for Mars. Uh, packing for Mars. Packing for Mars. Yeah. Uh, let me just play off the Mars uh, side of that for a second and say that uh, you mentioned some of the challenges we would have going to Mars. We're not ready to go right now, but of course we weren't ready to go to the moon when JFK announced we were going to the moon either. We were there eight years later. Uh, but some of the challenges we face going to Mars right now is um, perhaps lethal radiation. We're not sure how we're going to uh, be able to handle that. Uh, how do you carry enough food and uh, water and supplies for an almost two-year round trip? We haven't figured that out yet either. But again, none of these are insurmountable. In fact, maybe that's what makes the challenge of Mars even more interesting is because it's not going to be easy, but just because it's not easy doesn't mean we shouldn't try it. In terms of international space flight, as long as the speed of light becomes the outer boundaries of travel, which I guess there's hardly any debate about that really, there's a limit to space travel. Uh, True, false, general discussion? So the question is, as long as the speed of light is the outer boundary or the actual absolute limit, then there's a limit to uh, basically how we can get from point A to point B. Right. And in that normal reference frame of thinking, that's the case. So in other words, it's very highly unlikely that we'll be able to take an astronaut, put them in a platform, use chemical liquid engines or ion propulsion engines and get them to a star and back. That's probably not going to happen. So now you have to think generationally, right? right? So that's a different perspective you'll have to have. And that's why I say a robust space program is important now because <clears throat> if you think about it, <clears throat> sorry, we're doing no more than just stepping off the back porch of our house right now out in the backyard with going to lower Earth orbit. And so before we start traveling to distant countries out of our backyard, we have to go to the woods first and then go to the you know, the, to the next county and so forth. And so all of this is going to be a step-by-step -step process. And we've got to begin by going to the next destination. And so I, I concur with everybody. Mars is that next one. And once we learn how to do that, then our perspective changes. And so how do we get further out? Well, then other aspects come into be, such as generational, um, you know, flights and things of that nature. Uh, and uh, just to add one thing, you're right. Einstein said that there is a limit to speed, and it is the speed of light, uh, the constant. Um, but to me, that makes it even more important to focus on what I'm making, and that is trying to detect if there is life out there, not by going there humanly ourselves, but it would take too long. Uh, but uh, to listen to the signals, to try to either radio or, uh, or uh, laser light signals, and that's one way to discover what's out there, even without going, that, going there ourselves, is to um, allow for the uh, passage of time and the uh, possibility that other uh, intelligent civilizations are sending signals, and that would be one way to discover what's out there. And then you can get into almost what's called the paranormal, and yes, there's a limit to human uh, speed through space, but that, I guess, is into the question of what about thoughts and how far does that take us as well. You do just address, you talked about one of the byproducts of the space program, and, and it has been history. <coughs> And certainly there's been a lot of advances in medical sciences because of the space program. Not having a robust space program, um, the effect on the medical community because of the, uh, what do you say? 
yeah, I can talk to that. So the question is, uh, the space program obviously had a huge impact on our current technology through the Apollo program. And what happens if we don't have a space program? Well, you're absolutely correct. And I wouldn't say that it's just spin off so much. I say space is totally intertwined in everything we do every day. So as soon as you turn on your computer, you pull out your cell phone, you connect internationally with somebody, you're using space, either via satellites or whatever the case may be. Space is the ultimate green process. In other words, if I go to Mars someday, then I have to be the most green machine I can because I can't throw anything away, I have to reuse everything, so I have to develop those technologies. Also, I have to worry about what is called SWAP, S-W-A-P, space, weight, and power. The more stuff I carry up that's heavy, the less that I can carry with me, right? If something's heavy, I can't carry two of something. So space really drives emphasis on uh, minimizing space, minimizing weight, and improving the power output of something. And so the more you focus on that, that in turn just trickles down to everything we do, whether it's in your homes, your cars, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Given the wide-reaching implications for many different industries uh, that you just talked about for space travel, uh, and also the development of private sector alternatives to a lot of what NASA has been doing in the past, what do you see as the primary role of the federal government as opposed to the private sector? In I think the federal government goes where the private sector cannot in many, many respects. And in the past, we relied entirely on the federal government to sort of lead our space exploration. Uh, we didn't have to, uh, um, it was easier, I guess, to some extent. Uh, there wasn't uh, a situation where there were a number of companies involved, so there wasn't uh, a, a diffusion of interest or of initiatives, but it's probably more expensive than. What would have occurred if this private sector had been more involved. Today we're really getting into a hybrid. I mentioned the SpaceX and some of the other commercial companies, which is probably a good result because in some ways uh, the commercial uh, private sector can do things perhaps more quickly, more efficiently, perhaps uh, less costly than the federal government. On the other hand, the federal government needs to be involved to make sure that there's no uh, diminution of uh, safety standards and that, uh, that anything, uh, anything involved, particularly uh, as involves astronauts, it's going to be just as safe as the government is doing it. So uh, I think it's just a combination, and, and we're sort of feeling our way forward, but I think SpaceX, again, is off to a good start and has a good track record, and uh, we'll uh, go that direction. When I say it's a hybrid effort, uh, much of the funds that SpaceX gets in their way, in the form of their contracts are actually government contracts. It's not 100% uh, private initiative. It's a very much of a combination, and that's probably the way we're headed going to be, I think we take the best of both worlds, the best for the private sector, and the best for the government. Paul, with two missions to the space station, what was probably the, the, the most interesting aspect on your personal life going up there and, and even coming back? I mean, you know, here we go out to, you know, the Rocky Mountains and suddenly a lot of folks are getting sinus headaches and, and or you go to Machu Picchu and you're taking these pills because of altitude. What do you do, or what, what was the biggest impact that you had, you, you witnessed for yourself personally in spending that much time at the space station and then re-entering into our atmosphere, et cetera? Sure. So, um, as you can imagine, on orbit, as the children pointed out, we're really not very high. We're just standing on the back porch. You're about, uh, you know, 250 miles above an Earth that's actually much bigger. So you just see the curvature of the Earth. You look up. Space is still black, stars are still points of light, they don't twinkle, the moon's a little clearer, all of that. Your eyes are immediately gravitated and pulled down towards the Earth. I mean, that's the color, that's the, that is the one focus of everything you do while you're up there is looking down on the Earth. And that's where I saw what had the greatest impact on me, which to me was um, the fact that nature's forces are massive, and our day-to-day -day lives, in my opinion, um, are, in a sense, overshadowed by, by the force of nature throughout uh, the Earth at any one point. So I saw windstorms and dust storms in Southwest Asia that were hundreds of miles long. And you sit and think, you know, what would be the impact of those over thousands of years? You know, I saw ocean currents that you can see as they well up back and forth. I saw thunderstorms over Africa uh, 
uh, at nighttime in which the lightning was so intense that it almost, as I recall it, things, it reminded me of like popcorn going off, you know, and just massive thunderstorms over the equator. So that is what I came back with, which is um, we are an important part of this earth, but the earth itself, the nature's forces are something that we sometimes forget the extent with which the earth uh, continues to evolve and move and, and go about its daily changes itself. Well, how about physically? When you are going out there, do, is there a motion sickness that you that one experiences? Do you have to get, I mean, I'm thinking that one day we're all going to, well, hopefully one day we'll all be going out there. Right. But, I mean, what are some of the things that, is it science related? I mean, so, yeah, that's a very good question, and, and I'll summarize real quick, because it is interesting. If you remember seeing the photo right there, besides the fact that everybody's faces were shiny, did you see that our faces look puffy? Well, that's because gravity's not pulling the fluids down, so they migrate up into your upper uh, abdomen and into your face. And so you always feel like you have a cold when you're on the orbit because your sinuses are like that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, when we return to Earth, we have to do a lot of fluid loading because your body voids then all of this excess fluid that it feels it's had. And then if you return to Earth, return to Earth without having had a lot of fluids and salt, uh, you basically then come back with low blood pressure and, and you you had trouble standing. At the same time, on Earth, you know, I, I saw the the radiation that you were talking about, Chairman, uh, sleeping in one in the first night in one of the nodes. I, I had a green flash go through my eyes. I had been warned about those. That was high-speed gamma radiation passing through my eyeballs and going through the gelatinous, you know, part of my eye and creating kind of a wake vortex. So I saw that. Um, I felt the extension of my body. So your spine elongates on orbit. Uh, and I also had uh, the case of space adaptation sickness, um, not severe. And even though I was a pilot for many years, uh, after an hour on orbit, I still felt as if I was doing somersaults on orbit. Uh, and I adapted well after four days. And then on my second mission, which occurred just a few months after my first, I had no trouble readapting. And then coming back to Earth was good. But I was I was a good example. Some folks have it difficulty. And, as the last statement I'll say is Peggy Whitson, which I took up on my flight. So I brought up three to the space station and then a few months later brought them back. Very unusual situation. So I brought up Peggy, who was from my class, and then brought her back. And on orbit, she really worked out. She she was a strong farm girl from Iowa. And so when, when she came back, she had been exercising hard. But when we brought her off the space shuttle, we had to bring her off on the stretcher because, again, you know, the, the just the the re-getting adapted to, to gravity. So for those who stay on space for a long time, it's, it's a big impact. And so that's why we really have to use the space station to understand the impacts on humans if we're going to go deeper into space uh, towards Mars and 